Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Good morning. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. Jacob, that song is such a banger. I love that every morning. Yeah, shout out to Tip and Z for letting us play that. Yeah, Tip crushed it at Pacific Bitcoin. I'm sure you guys talked about that, but that was awesome. What's up, everybody? Michelle? For those Peter, who are Don. interested, I just put the lyrics up in the uh, nest. She just uh, she just put the lyrics online yesterday. Peter, bro, I went to sleep. You were on a space. I wake up. You're on a space. You, you've you been killing it. Um, I went to sleep during that space as well. Peter's star is rising. That's what hey, I was going to say about you, Dom. Yeah, I got a few issues too. It's all good. We're all degenerates. Hey, uh, I thought day, you were they, on your way to, to El Salvador. Yeah, quick couple, quick couple of errands. Need to get a quick surf in. Need to check in real quick here. See what Sam thinks about uh, the big appeal day today. Get some predictions and then hop in, and I'm gone. What's the appeal day today? If I'm if I'm correct, Sam probably knows, but uh, the details. But it's the it's the deadline at midnight for the SEC to appeal the decision that was reached during Grayscale's spot ETF appeal. Yeah, that's right. So um, basically, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judges ruled in August um, that the SEC denying the conversion of GPTC to an ETF um, was arbitrary and capricious, which means that um, they didn't think it was right. And so this is the deadline for the SEC to challenge that decision. And so we'll see if they'll kind of either decide to bend the knee or not, um, or if they'll just try to decide to fight it or give a new reason for why they should uh, reject the conversion. You know, there's a couple options that they have available to them. But um, today's the day. So we'll see what the SEC is going to decide to do. Yeah, Sam, I think whatever buys them the most time, I, I think they're going to request a panel appeal, not submit an actual appeal themselves, buy some time, maybe pull that back. But who knows? Maybe they just uh, throw in the towel. They, they, they could. I mean, I feel like people are, are attributing a low probability of that. But, I mean, they certainly why, could. Why would you throw in the towel when you don't pay for the, for the uh, legal services that you require? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think... I think, but I, I believe the, the least likely option is that they submit a formal written appeal with a new ju uh, justification as to why they won't approve it. I think they either go for the panel review 
from the appellate court um, or they just say we're done? The other idea is they could agree and then, you know, decide to just remove the futures ETFs, but that seems really unlikely given their size and popularity of the product. They could. They got some options. They got some options. What? The, hold on. The, the futures market in Bitcoin is like popular. Who 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 even uses that? Fiat maxis. Fiat maxis. <laughs> it's they used by institutional you know traders uh, for hedging and all kinds of things. People think it's very popular. So it's a it's like a security. So. Someone needs to do a meme like uh, in that movie Castaway where he's talking to the volleyball and he points and he's like, no, we got time. We got time. And they got to replace it with Gensler. I don't have the skills. Michelle, what's up? Hey, guys. So I don't want to derail the conversation completely from the macro, but I did want to make a little bit of an announcement. This morning, I bought gas in sats over lightning. Um, we are beta testing our merchant system and we've integrated it at a gas, a shell gas station here in Sarasota, Florida. I pinned uh, a tweet into the nest and it, everything went well, which is super exciting because I'm the product developer. It worked. And, uh, so if anybody's in Florida and wants to come to Sarasota, you can buy gas with Bitcoin. Gas priced in Bitcoin. Let's go. That's fucking awesome, Michelle. What's the what's the scaling uh, look like on this thing? Well, we're still beta testing. There's a couple features on the back end that that need some updates and some tweaking. There's uh, some features that are coming down the line that we kind of want to roll out before we really scale it. But we have five or six merchants that are each testing different pieces of the system. We have a full API integration. We have a couple e-commerce tools and then the actual merchant terminal um, for a lot of the gas stations where we have ATMs established uh, will probably be the first sort of set of adopters. So we're kind of slow rolling it. Um, but if anybody is out there and wants to accept Bitcoin, feel free to DM me or federal and we'll get you set up so just um if i'm understanding correctly the product just kind of makes it easier for merchants to integrate with lightning and accept uh, lightning payments cool yep what, what was your mission oh, go ahead sam sorry well no i'm just i'm curious to learn more about it michelle like so what's uh What's your guys' goal? Why did you guys start to to build out this product? And you know, where do you see it kind of fitting in um, to Bitcoin's adoption, as as well as why did why did you guys build it? What problem are you trying to yeah. solve? Yeah, sure. Well, it's really about Bitcoin and Lightning adoption. Um, so we Byte Federal is one of the oldest ATM companies. I think they're kind of one of the least known right now because um, they've grown really like slowly. Um, but everything is built in house. We build all of the ATMs here in Florida. 
Uh, we built all the software that runs the ATMs and we host everything that happens within the ecosystem. And prior to me joining the team, uh, they did, we have a wallet. We're in the process of redesigning and rebranding the wallet. Um, but the, the goal really is to enable full scale, like circular economies with the ATM, our wallet, and then the merchant piece, which is like a merchant terminal. Um, of course, if you have, you know, like at a farmer's market and you're just a sole proprietor, you can always do a direct peer-to-peer -peer transaction um, and accept Bitcoin or Lightning directly into your wallet. But we have a lot of merchants that host our ATMs and they have bigger needs um, and they want like a physical terminal and they want an integration into their existing systems. So we've been working on building that. That's super cool. I think like merchant adoption of Bitcoin and accepting Lightning is kind of the next wave of adoption. And um, I know like Parker Lewis is kind of focused on that now. And merchant adoption, it's like demanding to be paid in Bitcoin is kind of each each merchant doing that is going to build on itself um, and kind of drive Bitcoin adoption forward as it continues to be used as uh, more and more as like a medium of exchange for goods and services. Uh, I think it's kind of early days in that, but I think that is the next wave and it just occurs at each merchant. So building the infrastructure and easier tools for them to accept lightning is, is definitely a crucial step. So Michelle, that's awesome. It's so cool to hear. Peter, what's up? Um, hey, Michelle, are, are the merchants able to convert um, into fiat if they want, or is it just, is it just, they take lightning and then they, they do with it what they want uh, after the fact? Yeah, there is a conversion option. Um, so, of course, you know, our bills are still in fiat. So there is a, an ACH withdrawal feature that's built in, and they can either hold the Bitcoin or SATs in their, you know, they can hold it if they want. But no, there is an option to cash out in fiat, and it's an ACH uh, settlement. Are, are you targeting specific uh, individuals who are are already Bitcoiners or is this more about, you, you know what I mean? I mean, what's your, what's the kind market? Of. Yeah, kind of. So the, in, the, the guy that we set up today um, is near our office. He has a very successful ATM, a very active ATM. And the reason for that is because he is, super into Bitcoin. He's a Bitcoiner, right? And so when people come into his gas station, he's like, hey, you can buy Bitcoin here. Like, I know you're here for gas or a soda, but you can also get Bitcoin. So he's really like a Bitcoin evangelist. Um, and so we have developed a relationship with him. And, you know, he actually informed a lot of the decisions that we made as we were building the product. Um, so I think, Sam, what you said that merchants are sort of the next layer is really on point. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing. And that's how we're making decisions as we develop the products to enable um, their needs.
That's so cool because, like, uh, over the years, you know, there's there's a lot of Bitcoiners and people that are like, "Hey, can I pay you in Bitcoin? Can I can I pay you in Bitcoin?" And then it's like a chicken egg problem because even if the merchant wanted to, they might not have the tools necessary to do it. And um, same, vice versa, if the merchant, you know, accepts Bitcoin, if the user doesn't want to pay in Bitcoin, you know, that's the problem with merchant adoption. It's a chicken and egg problem. But if you at least have the tools there. And if fiat keeps going the way it's going, which is not good, continues to get debased, then more and more merchants logically will start to demand a money that holds its value over time. Uh, but first, we need to build the tools. You know, got to build the ark uh, before it rains, as Parker Lewis likes to say. So that's awesome, Michelle. Really cool. Interesting yeah. too, uh, uh, since since Swan is building out their Lightning payment system on their app. Yeah, I think Lightning really is the future and that, you know, there is a massive demand. And so I don't think we can have enough tools right now. You, you mean there's a massive demand for a payment system where the um, the, the centralized uh, authority isn't going to come in and say that they're not going to allow you to make that transaction because there's potential fraud? Yes, yeah, the chargebacks, I don't think people understand like how screwed merchants get by the current credit card systems. Um, you know, they, they, the, the fees associated with these payment processors are typically the second largest costs for small businesses um, behind labor costs. So these small businesses absolutely get crushed. And, I, you know, I've been tracking this for a while and um, there's been a lot of movements and like the Small Business Association has gone to Washington, D.C. talking about the um, kind of duopoly that exists between MasterCard and Visa to jack these uh, rates up, these fees on these businesses. And they have to accept them because right now it's, it's the dominant form of payment, um, you know, conventionally by the consumers. And so they these companies can just increase the, the fees on them over and over again. And then there's chargeback fees that usually the merchants have to pay for and who do the, what do the merchants do to kind of offset those costs? Well, they increase the prices on the consumers. And I'm, so I'm Sam, I'm curious, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stepping on Mickey here. Um, but Sam, I'm curious, do you also try to track the amount of money that is lost because of the um, ability for the, the individuals involved in the settlement process to, um, you know, make, interest in overnight repo every time they hold uh someone's uh someone's money before it finally gets to them like who who's doing that you mean like the banks yeah i mean you know because each step along the way i mean typically typically it's not just it's not just one step from from when the from when the charge yeah, yeah. is made to the settlement there's multiple yep. steps in there and everybody in that process is making money in the overnight repo it's basically the banks though it's it's really just the banks that are that are doing that. But you're ex you're absolutely right, Peter. Like they almost are incentivized for these settlement times to be slower, so that they can hold on to the funds longer to collect the interest. Um, but it's mostly it's these banks. It's not uh you know it's not the payment processors, but but the banks are you know the banks the payments side of the business for these banks make up a huge portion of their revenues. This is why like Lightning disrupts the crap out of them <laughs> like it really does i forgot the statistics i think i think it's like 40 percent of their revenues come from 
the revenues generated from payments. And that's, I'm talking about commercial banks here, but um, you know, I just find that side of things fascinating and lightning has all these benefits including lower fees, but also decreased chargeback or no chargebacks and um, decreased fraud. It's impossible to counterfeit Bitcoin and um, you know, all these benefits. So fast settlement times. So anyway, kind of geeking out here, but I just think it's really cool. Mickey, what did you have to say before I stepped on you? I apologize. I was just going to talk about lightning as well. I thought it was good timing. So, you know, Lindsay's working her way through Bitcoin evangelism. Um, And she she was asking about lightning yesterday. So I'm like, you know, why don't you just here download Wallet of Satoshi. I'll, I'll like show you a couple things. So, you know, teacher... Lightning URL, um, Lightning invoice. You know, we go through like a couple things. Like, okay, you can text it to me. I can scan the QR code. And then we're like, hey, check this out. <clears throat> like, screenshot the uh, the Lightning URL, and I'll put it up on Twitter. And of course, within literally sixty seconds, somebody zaps their sixty nine sats. Obviously, you know. Um, but. Within a couple minutes, it's like a thousand, a thousand, ten thousand, two thousand, five thousand. It's like holy shit! Like what? It, you know what I mean? And it's just Bitcoiners are so fucking generous. It's like overwhelming sometimes. So, anyways, I retweeted it, and we're we're taking all those sats um, and donating them to to uh, Gabe's operation Bitcoin to like train the veterans. So I I threw that up in the nest. It was kind of it's kind of crazy. But yeah, there, I think the biggest sap was like fifty thousand sats, and so it's just it's just crazy. You know, so one, obviously, like you got to show people stuff sometimes for them to like truly get it. And lightning is is sort of mind blowing once you once you like actually watch it happen. And then two bitcoiners are a bunch of financially illiterate psychopaths that are insanely generous and overwhelming sometimes. I think. Everybody who's a Bitcoiner just enjoys using Lightning. And so anytime I get an excuse to use Lightning, I do. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do, especially at a bar or tipping somebody, right? You can have them download Wallet of Satoshi in like 30 seconds, send them some Bitcoin, and that's it. And it really is one of the best tools to orange pill people. Yeah, I did that with the guy at the In Out Burger when I was on my way to Santa Monica. I'm talking to uh, this group of I don't know legislators, I guess you could say, and some like institutional investors at this great event called Bitcoin Expedition in Jefferson City, Missouri, next week. And uh, we, I'm doing just like a Bitcoin 101 segment for like 45 minutes. And me and Keith, Keith Laska, who runs Learn Bitcoin, which is an awesome website. But we were like, how should we do it? You know, how should we teach these people about Bitcoin? These are a lot of newbies and don't really understand Bitcoin at all. And we were like, well, let's just do a lightning transaction in front of them. Like go back to the basics and just show them the magic of Bitcoin and how you could send Bitcoin instantly peer to peer. And I think as Bitcoiners, we're so close to this stuff and in the weeds that we forget just the magic of this technology that we can just send a payment. <laughs> just like immediately to the person right next to you and it settles right there in front of you. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wild technology. And and for people that aren't familiar with Bitcoin, it still kind of blows their hair back if they've ever done a cross-border payment or sent a wire 
Um, it's just, we, we decided that that's how we're going to kind of start things. So it really is. It's just amazing. Lightning. So you're going to have everybody in the room download Wallet of Satoshi. You're going to put up a, a QR code so they can grab some sats and then tell them to uh, show them how they can pass sats to their neighbors. That would be really cool. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do something. I'm actually talking with him uh, later this afternoon. We're going to figure out the logistics of it. But we're going to do something like that for sure. There was some other news about Lightning. Like Blockstream launched a green light to the public. Uh, yesterday, which is a lightning as a service solution. So kind of aims, I'm just reading right here, it transforms the way developers and enterprise clients worldwide integrate fast, low-cost Bitcoin payments into their software via the lightning network. Um, It's convenient and it's non-custodial, which is the really cool part, I believe. So uh, Blockstream launches another lightning as a service solution. The more of these, the better. And uh, obviously, Blockstream is a very you know respected firm. Um, it's led by Christian Decker, uh, who's a really talented uh, engineer. So, Blockstream, green light, check, go check it out. Hey Michelle, how long did this project take to to build out? A long time. Uh, They've been working on the merchant system since before I joined the team, which was back in June. So it's taken quite a while to build and get all the features built out. Um, But it is, it's ready to go. It it took a couple months. Um, What? what, That's a long time, really? Well, I guess, I guess it's all relative, but you know, you can, you can write the code pretty quickly, but then you've got to flush out all the features and test it and make sure it all works and build. I came in, most of the back end functionality was built, but we had to develop, you know, the, the merchant interfaces and the pieces that the customer interact with. And, and that's the harder part. Cause then you're doing UI UX and and nailing that is really important for adoption and ease of use, right? So that's the part that gets trickier. I wonder how long it takes for a, a TradFi company to build out some kind of uh, functionality for any of the TradFi current TradFi services. I'd be willing to bet it's more than a few months. Yeah, so that's definitely years. I can vouch for that, having worked at a bunch of these startups. Years and then half the products never launch at best. And then the ones that do, you know, a third to a fifth of them survive or were even wanted in the first place, right? So Lightning is not only easy to use and better for the users, um, but also easier to implement. Hmm. going to take over whether they like it or not hey it took uh took them about four years to get fed now out the door i just choked (laughs) i the, the one other thing i'll say about lightning um that i mean just relevant to this discussion i guess this week was um Sam Wouters from from River put out an excellent report on the Lightning Network, 
Um, so I suggest everyone go check that out. Um, he, they found that there was about a 1,200% increase in two years in terms of uh, lightning payments that has occurred. So that's the growth of the network. So despite you know 44% Bitcoin price drop, um, and they say a 45% decrease in search interest, Bitcoin payments on Lightning have increased 1,200% in two years. So I wonder, I wonder how much of that is attributed to zapping on Noster. <laughs> oh yeah, probably, probably a portion of it for sure. Um, but it is a, it's a, it's a fantastic research report. So kudos to Sam and, and the team over there for, for putting in the work and writing it. It's, um, I recommend going and checking it out. When you're ready to go full macro, Sam, I'm really hoping someone can explain this treasuries nonsense. Which nonsense? <laughs> the fact that it's all been bleeding out last week or two. Um, it's definitely been uh, signs of cracking in the largest, most important financial market in the world that underlies the entire Get fueled traditional financial system. So we will certainly get into that, Michelle. Probably wait till the second half. I wanted to um I wanted to talk a little bit about I like I I've been I've been looking at like the 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 news around the war that broke out and I don't know if you guys saw this, but Bitcoin and crypto, there was like a Wall Street Journal article where they said that oh, Hamas receives a lot of financing from, from crypto and from, from Bitcoin. And what I found really interesting is, is like back in April 2023, they were receiving payments, but it was a fraction of obviously their, their total funding. But in April 2023, the Hamas leader said, actually, can you stop sending those? Because, um, you know, it's not the best way to like launder money <laughs> using Bitcoin and crypto because of the tracking capabilities of it and the transparent nature. And so they actually just told them to stop. And so I, I just found it really interesting that that article came out in the Wall Street Journal kind of slamming crypto and, and even Bitcoin was mentioned specifically um, in light of this war. And then I think Bloomberg posted an article today that kind of talked about the nuance of it of saying like actually it's not it's not really a good way to move money around and it kind of highlights the narratives around Bitcoin being used by criminals still that exist it's it's less loud than it has been um but it also highlights you know Bitcoin and some of the privacy concerns like um you know as an industry have to think about different ways to ensure privacy. Um, obviously, we don't want it to be used by terrorists and stuff like that, but private privacy is pretty important for, uh, for transactions I, I, as well. I, I want it to be used by terrorists. I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an enforcement agency's wet dream for people to use Bitcoin for illicit and illegal purposes. Yep. Today, I, I, yes. put, I put the tweet up in the nest, by the way, or a, a version of the chart or whatever. Thanks, Peter.
somebody messaged me about this. I like to cite that KPMG report that shows, I think it was like less than 1% of transactions are used for illicit activity. But they sure are still pushing this narrative. They just desperately want people to believe that Bitcoin and crypto is used for terrorism and war. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. What that article shows, and I saw that article, I think it was New York Post that posted that. And it just shows the incompetence of of journalism. Uh, That's what it really, really shows. amongst everything else that they're already doing in journalism. And uh, this is just another thing they're totally screwing up. And uh, uh, I actually think that using Bitcoin can achieve those things. Like if it's used properly, it can certainly be used in a private way, but we're not even close to being there yet. Like most people have no idea how to use Bitcoin in a private way. And most people don't really need to use Bitcoin in a private way yet. Well, we'll see what happens further down the line. And again, for organizations like Hamas, like Bitcoin is just not going to be big, like it's not going to be important enough for them to spend a bunch of time figuring it out how to use it in a private way. Uh, it's easier for them to just receive piles of cash that the United States keeps sending over to the Middle East. You know, and I wonder actually if it's incompetence or it's propaganda. Uh, and for when it comes to the United States government, it's always both in equal portions. You know, it's interesting, Tone. Um, there's a, a friend of mine lives in Colombia, and I'm actually having a, a Zoom call with her on on uh, Monday to to show her how she 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 puts everything into her into one address, and didn't realize that that people were able to um, view the change address so they could see what the balance was that she had left within that address. And I showed her some screenshots of it. I said, do you really want people to see this? And she was, she was actually shocked. So for anybody out there in the crowd, this is why coin control is very important. You want to, I mean, potentially, and there's a, you know, there's a balance between, you know, how much your, how much each UTXO is uh, to deal with uh, future fees uh, for moving stuff on chain and then also, um, you know, your, your privacy. So if you want to pay for something that costs, uh, uh, um, you know, $500, you don't want to pull out a, uh, necessarily want to pull out a $10,000 bill or a $20,000 bill to pay that because the, the vendor or the person that is, um, you know, the, the recipient of that send can then, uh, see what the, uh, what the balance is. And then the other thing that is, is that then they can track that because they, they, they can with pretty, pretty high assurity, they can know it's from you. And now they can sit there and, and sit on that wallet and or that address and watch it. And they can they can see where more of your funds are being dispersed to. They can't necessarily know where those funds are going, but they can see the address. So um, this is one of these things that, you know, privacy is is something that a lot of Bitcoiners do need to learn about. Yeah, and that's like the very basic stuff. I mean, that's the kind of stuff a regular person can learn. Uh, but things like mixers or move or the deciding to uh, you know transact an LBTC instead of BTC through the Lightning Network through like, through the Liquid Network for full privacy. I mean, that kind of stuff. We're not. I don't think that's necessary yet. Uh, but the basic stuff you just said is very very useful. And also something like every now and then. Um, 
completely max out and like send everything from that wallet to reset it back to fresh zeros, right? And then there won't be any change coming out of there uh, through transactions. If you never like hit that max button on your wallet to send max, uh, then there's always going to be a change address. And and if a boomer like me can figure this out, what do you think the 20 and 30 year olds are doing? Well, Greenpeace is trying to scare them away. Well, well, no, you'd be surprised how lazy some of the 20 year olds are these days. Like, you know, as long as TikTok's still working, they're okay. We should also remember that it's like underneath all of this, like talking about the the terrorists, the the Hamas. It's like I bet they also drink coffee. I bet they eat eggs. Oh, I don't hear Terrence. Is that me? Oh, I, I hear him. I don't hear him either. Uh, I'll, I'll, Terrence, I'll, I hear you. I'll, you want me to leave and come back? No, typically it's the individuals that can't hear you that have to leave and come back. All right. Well, I mean, I was just saying we just need to remind ourselves that it's like it. Bitcoin is this agnostic tool. And, you know, regardless of what the mainstream media says, it's like, you know, the terrorists are going to use rope and baseball bats and hammers and drive cars and shampoo their hair and, you know, whatever. It's let let them use Bitcoin if they want to use Bitcoin. It's uh, if they can figure it out. It, it um, you know. The mainstream media is not going to say that, you know, bread is bad or socks, wearing socks and belts are bad. But I promise you, the terrorists are wearing socks and have belts. Hey, Sam, uh, thanks for bringing me up. I just wanted to comment. I, I enjoyed your analysis of the uh, the new BIS, BIS uh, initiative, the Atlas project that you um, tweeted about on Wednesday night which is really frightening and just uh, wanted you to just talk a little bit about that and then just compliment it with, I don't know if anyone caught the Edward Snowden uh, uh, speech yesterday at Bitcoin Amsterdam, but if you didn't, it's really worth giving a listen. He talks about how those of us who are in Bitcoin and maybe more uh, te technologically adept, you know, can coin join and can use things for privacy, but just that the Bitcoin is such an important pool, tool against government surveillance and that by requiring everyone to be experts in hiding their tracks is not really the, he's, I think it's like squeezing yourself through a keyhole is not really the best way to ensure privacy. So he's, you know, it's a, it's a great speech and it just talks about our responsibility to make sure that we continue to have, um, you know, that, that we continue to fight against government surveillance and, and use Bitcoin as a tool. But um, Sam, I don't know if you wanted to comment a little bit more about that, um, that, that Atlas project. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And yeah, the Snowden speech kind of fit in well with that, that tweet about the, the project Atlas. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, I, I would just go back, like even the cypherpunks, they knew that this encryption, like encryption in general, and Bitcoin is an encryption technology, would be fought against the state um, who continually want to surveil and increase their surveillance powers. And even Timothy May, cypherpunk, he said, you know, they will try to slow or halt the speed of this technology, citing national security concerns, and they'll use the four horsemen, drug dealers, tax evaders, terrorists, um, and money launderers. Um, as the scapegoats to try to bring this technology down and under their control. And 
Bitcoin is transparent and it's like this trade-off because it needs to be transparent at the base layer to for all the nodes to check, you know, 21 million. And but at the same time, because it's so transparent, right now there's trade-offs with privacy. But you know, there are these tools and innovations that have come up over the years that improves the privacy guarantees. And those are the coin mixers and those are the coin joins, but they do take uh, technical know-how to do. But then there's also like Lightning, which has better privacy concerns and Fediment, which has better privacy concerns because it uses Chaumian emints. And so there are developments happening, but there is kind of a race, I think, that's occurring. And on the other side of that race is the Bank of International Settlements. And what I brought up was a pilot program that they launched last week um, that basically aims to surveil the Bitcoin network and other all crypto assets by combining on-chain data with exchange data. And they talk about how you know they, they will essentially run a node. They'll basically enforce the exchanges to give them information and data in their jurisdiction. And they'll combine the on-chain data with the exchange data. And by looking at the addresses, they'll be able to kind of in one platform, these central bankers and these regulators will be able to tie the flows and the addresses to specific entities and individuals. And obviously this would be a surveillance tool for them, an ultimate surveillance tool. And they even mentioned coin joins specifically in the article, which is what I brought up because I thought it was fascinating because I've read a lot of biz stuff and I was just surprised that they even knew about coin joins, to be honest with you. But they were like, yeah, coin joins can be a problem with uh, surveillance uh, because basically it obfuscates the transaction trail. And we identify coin joins, but we just ignore them for now, but they know they know about them. And so I thought, you know, it could be a good way to, if you are thinking about increasing the privacy of your stack and coin joining, you might want to do that. But some people in the comments thought, well, you might not want to because once you coin join, you can't uncoin join. And that could make it, you know, that stack be a lot difficult to get in and out of fiat if you need to. You know, life happens and you might need to sell your Bitcoin. If banks suddenly don't allow coin join Bitcoins, well, that's another problem altogether. Um, but for me, it's like, if, if you want to go about this, I do see a situation just like Tornado Cash I think we saw what they do for privacy-enhancing uh, innovations in this space. They, they don't like it. And so they know about CoinJoins. They're building out this pilot program, Project Atlas, that aims to combine data from exchanges and on-chain data to better surveil Bitcoin flows. Um, and their, their big thing is they want to do this because of, you know, they talk about money laundering, they talk about loss trading, and they talk about crypto's impact on global financial stability because it's grown so large over the last couple of years, which is why they have to better monitor it and, and control it and surveil it. And that's Project Atlas, so you can check it out. And um, I guess that's that's my summary, but I've got a couple of hands up here. We'll go to Tone and then Michelle. Um, I can let Michelle go. I was going to uh, talk about Snowden, but not specifically about the project. I'm just going to say it real quick. Um, I didn't hear this speech from Edward Snowden, but like a few years ago, I heard a few of his speeches and he had a lot of misunderstandings about Bitcoin, but he speaks like an authority on Bitcoin. So I just want to, I just want people to know, like, be careful with a lot of like the popular people because they're really busy. Like Edward Snowden is not in a space like this every day, but a lot of you guys are. So don't be surprised if the majority of the people listening in this space right now 
understand Bitcoin better and know more about the Bitcoin ecosystem than someone like Edward Snowden. Uh, just just be aware of that. Like, don't underestimate your own knowledge of what's going on. Uh, and uh, because, you know, using and doing Bitcoin stuff every day is not whatever Snowden does, I guarantee you guys. Uh, so just, just be aware of that. Sam, I had a question also about that. I was looking at that report or analysis that you put out yesterday, and I didn't have time to look closer, but I was curious is that related or intertwined at all with the with what the World Economic Forum pack that's being put together? Um, Whitney Webb wrote an article at the end of September for Bitcoin Magazine an- analyzing this WEF pack that's like uniting all of these governmental agencies to fight, you know, crime crypto crime and and all of that and i i didn't have time like i said to look close enough at the analysis you did i did wasn't sure if those two initiatives were related or if these are separate things that are being done i actually i'm not familiar with that whitney web piece but i just pulled it up i'm kind of pulling through it i don't i don't I don't know if it's like in cahoots with them or I know the biz influences all these central banks and all of these organizations. It's kind of like this global hub of research um, and the central bankers meet there every month to discuss things behind closed doors. And I'm sure it's related, but I I don't know if it's like directly related. I don't know if, um, you know, I have no reason to believe that this biz pilot program is directly related to this World Economic Forum pact. Um, but I'm reading it now. It's really interesting. So sorry, I don't have any more information than that. That's okay. It, it's all pretty terrifying. So, Do you have like a little summary for people who maybe that – are you familiar with it enough to kind of give a little summary on Whitney's article? I can try. I wrote, um, I, so basically the, the world economic forum is spearheading this super pack kind of, um, it's an, it's like a global initiative and they are pulling in basically all of the alphabet agencies. Um, what struck me in the article that in her analysis was that a lot of the agencies in the U.S., including the FBI, the DEA, and the Department of Homeland Security, have already signed on to cooperate with this pack, And it's basically a surveillance machine, right? Um, so they want to develop uh, models by which they can survey crypto transactions and then create rules around them. And they they go as far as to say there may need to be new proceeds local regulations. So we're seeing this like in other industries also. We saw it with COVID. The um, World Health Organization wants to tell you what you can and can't do. Um, but it's just kind of an extension of this idea of a global surveillance program and the thing that struck me the most is the level and 
number of agencies that they already have signed on board and cooperating. Yeah, I'm reading it now. And yeah, it's like a lot of Whitney Webb's posts. It's kind of terrifying and angering. Um, but it says basically this initiative called for the fusion of commercial banks and financial authorities, regulators, national security and law enforcement agencies. And uh, the merging of all those entities, she argues, would be a complete nightmare scenario. Um, and she says it's all about fighting financial uh, privacy, but also to fight cybercrime. And so you hear that a lot. You hear that a lot, this chatter around cybercrime, like cybercrime's next frontier. And um, it seems like they're trying to band together to create this surveillance infrastructure to fight, quote unquote, cybercrime. And they consider Bitcoin a part of that cybercrime is what Whitney Webb argues. She said they've made it very clear in these policy documents incubated by groups like the WEF that they see financial privacy, the popularity of Bitcoin, and the value of Bitcoin as direct threats responsible for what they define as cybercrime. And so certainly concerning, I would say that the Project Atlas could become their go-to analytics platform that they all use and kind of plug into and integrate into um, to track flows. That's kind of how I'd see these things combining together because that's what Project Atlas is. It's meant to be the infrastructure where you take all the data from the exchanges and on chain, uh, put it into one analytics platform and into one dashboard that all of these different entities and agencies could use together. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that that makes sense. And for anybody that wants to read the original article that Whitney Webb wrote, I put it up in the nest. Yeah, I want to see one of those Captain Planet memes with all of the Captain Planet kids, like, you know, as the government agencies and they're summoning, Cap, you know, Captain Planet Wrecker. Um, do you guys think that this really kind of puts a bit of a sense of urgency to get more Bitcoin circular economies going and getting more peer-to-peer transactions actually occurring? Because right now, I think, I don't know the percentages, but it seems like a lot of the transactions that occur are people going from fiat into Bitcoin on an exchange and then pulling it off, but not necessarily using it for a whole lot more beyond that, unless it's like Lightning Network stuff, for instance, on Noster and things like that. But um, just curious what your thoughts are. I'd say yes. Yeah, I guess, yep. I guess just uh, to make sure I'm, I'm clear the, the thought, the premise is basically that the more peer-to-peer transactions there are, the harder it is to actually track what's actually going on. Because even though you can see it on chain, you don't necessarily know. Like, hypothetically, I go to a farmer's market and I exchange Bitcoin for some goods, and then that person uses it and buys something else. Like, if there's not a, a KYC attached to each transaction, it gets more and more difficult to figure out what's actually going on. And then eventually, it, it basically 
you have to have a high enough percentage of those kind of transactions occurring. And then sure, even though you can see stuff happening on chain, if, if there's not a government ID attached to every single transaction, it can be pretty hard after a few transactions to really know from a probability standpoint what's going on. I think it's super important, not only in sort of making it more difficult for them, but also just in fighting the narrative, right? The more people that are actually using Lightning and Bitcoin, um, the more people that are going to fight back against this narrative that they want to build, that it's a dangerous thing and they need to be able to control it and see it and all of those types of things. I'm just like um, reading the last two paragraphs of this Whitney Webb piece are so spot on that I almost want to read them. And it's, it's the other thing they need to happen is for the average. I'm, I'm reading them. I'm reading them. The other thing they need to happen is for the average person to become incredibly fearful of financial privacy and online privacy to the point that they will willingly trade their privacy for greater security. Or rather, what will be sold as greater security? Bitcoin, privacy-minded crypto, and privacy-preserving technologies like encryption must become public enemy number one in order for the offered solution to be accepted by the masses. A completely surveilled internet and completely surveilled financial system. The fight over the control of the cryptocurrency space is part of the larger war being fought over the future of our society, our country, and the world. Will we sleepwalk into a world of CBDCs where intelligent agencies, central banks, and commercial banks have fused into the same Orwellian entity, where wholly interlinked Bitcoin or using encryption or mixers makes you a cyber criminal? Or will we fight the groups and institutions that have looted American wealth for well over a century and demand a return to the Constitution and the right to privacy, not just financially, but in all senses? Those that wish to force us into the former scenario clearly and unequivocally see Bitcoin and privacy-enhancing technologies as a direct threat to their power. So I think that sums it up pretty well. And that's kind of what Bitcoin is, is an encryption technology. And it is a continuation of this greater war between privacy and surveillance in the digital age. And um, right now, I think we're seeing like the chess pieces moving and that's kind of what we saw with Project Atlas and Bitcoin and what Whitney Webb is referring to with this WEF pack. Um, it's it's going to get interesting here in the next few years, I think. I love Whitney Webb. That was awesome. I mean, you guys really scared about this? Y'all sound like you're scared. Like, y'all didn't envision that this was what these guys are going to do at some point? I mean, like, it's not just coin joins. There's, there's, like, a bunch of different ways to handle this, as the gentleman who came up said or alluded to. I mean, that's just, like, one other way. Like, I mean, this thing is going to be pretty hard to, to, I mean, continually track unless they pull a lot of levers that may actually tilt the scales against them in the public eye. I don't think it's so much a surprise as it is just watching it start to play out. We're really in the fight you stage and 
you know, there's like this disconnect between what we know that they will do and then watching it start to play out. The other thing too, you know, to your point, um, or I guess kind of what you were alluding to, and um, I think without the fear, like that is the only mechanism of enforcement they actually have because anything else is, is legitimately too expensive if people are just doing nonviolent noncompliance or civil disobedience and basically just saying, no, screw you, I'm not, I'm not going to comply with this stuff. The only way to get it to actually function is fear. Um, so I think having spaces like this, having people talk about it openly, um, know that it's coming helps to abate some of that fear when it does inevitably come. And I do think anybody that wants to operate as a sovereign individual um, is going to have to accept that at certain at a certain point, these entities are going to keep pushing until it's going to basically be necessary for you to do some level of civil disobedience like it's just it is what it is right like they're not going to stop pushing for more control more surveillance more authoritarianism like it is their ideology it's what they're pushing towards they're coordinating for that and at some point it's going to come to your doorstep and you're going to have to be ready for it I, I really do believe that Yeah, like I said, like I'm I'm optimistic about the developments happening in Bitcoin and the innovation that we're seeing over the last year or two. Um, Fediments have better privacy uh, guarantees. Lightning itself has better privacy guarantees. Have things like coin joins. I expect those developments to continue. And uh, for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction and and that's what i see like the cypherpunks even said you know we have an advantage we have we're innovators we're nimble we can build technology and concrete solutions um that kind of supersede the law in a way and so that's what encryption does it's kind of this impenetrable shield in the digital era and um you know it's up to us to build the tools to combat this but I agree, you know, and I'm like, it's not like fear. It's just, I like to track these developments because it's not like, oh, we're not just thinking about this. We're not just kind of theorizing that these steps are taking place and these actions and moves are happening behind the scenes to increase um, the surveillance state for financial transactions. It is actually happening and they do it out in the open. I don't know if that's hubris or they just don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. Uh, They think they're just increasing security perhaps, or, you know, really stopping criminals. I don't know what their intentions are, but, you know, it's, it's helpful to keep track of these things, I think, and to know like, okay, our work's not done here. We gotta, we gotta keep building. Yeah, I agree. I think also that some of the stuff with uh, like where you're saying that they're not hiding it, they're doing it in the open. I think that they did hide it for a long time in previous generations. And we've said that like the internet has been this, uh like transparent effect bitcoin furthers that like it's really hard to like hide in bitcoin and try to run your shell games in bitcoin we've seen you get wrecked and then truth you know is like really important in this era people are waking up and like i said the internet has like there's a lot of misinformation on the internet but it's like there's still that idea that you can start to think for yourself and and try to see these these moves from these serpents but the other part is the stakes are higher now 
So I don't know how much they can hide it. You know, they, they are just basically putting all their cards on the table and shoving the whole, like they're all in. Got to keep control of this thing before everything goes off the tracks. What happened to the serpents get Sam? Possibly. I can tell you from, you know, from my experience, I'm, I'm 59. I can tell you from my experience that, uh, the, the, the industrial surveillance state that has been created in the last 15 or 20 years is, is just insanely, um, intrusive and, um, uh, has, has an amazing overreach. And uh, unfortunately I, I bought right into it because I'm talking to you on its number one surveillance device, which is my phone. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure how I can, uh, effectively and easily disengage from that. It's, it's kind of a conundrum for me, um, because I have noticed this and, you know, back in the day when, when, when Kissinger was attributed with that, uh, with that quote that he never made, um, I think it was actually made in the mid nineties. So it's still relevant. Um, data was, was not considered to be, um, a part of, so what he said was, sorry, what he said was, is that control the food, you control a, a, uh, um, a continent, control the energy, excuse me, control the food, you control the nation, control the, con control the energy, you control a, a continent, control the money, you control the world, right? Well, what they didn't, what nobody was thinking about that time, even into the nineties, because data was all siloed was that, you, you know, it's really about data. It's who controls the data. And, and the data flow. And if you can control the data and the data flow, you can control the world because what is money? Money is just data. That's all it is. Uh, and and there's so much more to that. So, um, but yeah, holding this phone in my hand and knowing, um, you know, that my entire life effectively is, is, and more than my entire life. I mean, this thing, this thing like knows where I'm at at all times. It, 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 you know, it's it's actually a scary device, but most of us don't really think about that. The convenience of these devices um, has lulled us into this uh, into this sleep, and and hopefully people are starting to wake up. Okay, I'm not going to go on a rant about the Patriot Act, but Peter, I think you're dead on. Tone actually talks about this a lot. That we don't even really need a CBDC. All we need is for them to achieve a cashless society. And they can control everything that everyone does. They're not going to control me. I opted out. You can't control what I'm doing with my money. Fuck you. Everyone but us. Exactly. I think like once uh, it, it goes back to the system as well. Like we've gotten to this point where at the end of the long-term debt cycle, like the fiscal situation I think unsustainable is the word that's being used by not only Bitcoiners, but seemingly everyone now, even the organizations like the IMF um, and the Institute of International Finance are calling the debt situation unsustainable. And so when you get to this end point, what happens is there's a reaction from governments and central banks to you know, close all the exits and try to keep everybody in. And there's increased capital controls and surveillance. Um, and this is what Christine Lagarde said. They're like, Bitcoin will be used as an exit. 
Um, and, and I think having that exit there is just so, so important. Um, as we enter this period of high inflation and you're going to see more gaslighting as well. Like Paul Krugman, I mean, the guy, <laughs> the guy went viral for all the wrong reasons again, because he says the war on inflation is over. We won at very little cost. And he has this chart of CPI, X food, energy, shelter, and used cars. And, you know, Brady Swenson, our, um, you know, head of media, he, he goes like, yes, yeah, CPI, including food, energy, shelter, and used cars. It's up about 41% um, since October 2020. Uh, and so you have these economists, these paid economists who are saying that inflation's over and you should be feeling good and we won. Um, but of course, that's not the case. And that's not how f- people feel on the ground. And I know, it, John, it, <laughs> John, it, de- it depends on Sam, it depends on who you are, right? Who, who, who didn't suffer much? And that, that's the Jamie Diamonds of the world. Yeah, did you see JP Morgan profits are up this quarter? They're uh, beat estimates, record interest income. Record interest income. That means like the difference between the interest they have to pay on deposits versus what they make, you know, parking uh, their funds in, in reserves and earning over like 5%. Um, they have record interest income. JP Morgan also made a ton of money when they were basically given First Republic for pennies on the dollar. Uh, just another example of big banks getting bigger and benefiting from crises. But John, I, I wanted to uh, welcome you to the stage. I want to I want to hear your thoughts around that Krugman treat, tweet because I thought it was so ridiculous. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Good, good to be here. I'm still riding the high from Pacific Bitcoin. I'm sure you guys are too. Um, Krugman tweet, absolutely insane. It's like, at this point, he has to know to some degree the backlash he's going to get and like how cherry picking and like randomly adjusting the data, you know, that he, he has to be aware that he's doing that. Um, one of the things that probably went a little less noticed because it's absurd enough to say, let's exclude food, energy, used cars, shelter. He On the side of the chart, he put the six-month change and then annualized it. So, so like, he's even cherry-picking the time period and just saying, like, if you exclude all these things, if you look at this particular time period and then analyze it, uh, it's, like, kind of back to 2%. Victory. Like, it's just so comical. Like, even for someone like him who's basically just, like, a mainstream uh, economics Keynesian shill at this point, like, it's even a low for him. Um, so yeah, it's just totally absurd. And then, um, what you were just talking about, Sam reminded me of something that actually came up with some of my, uh, friends when I was playing hockey last time, we were just talking about the last few years and COVID and, um, you reminded me of this with JP Morgan and, uh, how, how well they're doing. And we were just noting how the last like three, four years was basically one of the best environments to be a large corporation. And, and like, not in a good way, like they got the most preferential treatment and it's just so absurd to the point that it's like sickening, whether it was the big box stores could stay open during COVID or if Amazon sells things online, they can keep doing that during COVID. Oh, you know, the economic environment is, is uncertain while you big corporations are still open. You also get to issue five, 10, 30 year debt at record low coupons. So you get to kick the can down the road while small, medium-sized businesses have to stay closed, rely on the government for benefits. 
and they can't issue uh, debt in the capital markets. Um, so it's just like so absurd that that was allowed to happen. And also from people who like historically would have been anti big business, like they would have been skeptical of helping out large corporations so much. They were just like all about it. Um, and now you look at companies like JP Morgan actually doing well in a rising interest rate environment. We've talked about Microsoft in the past, how they're basically a bank <laughs> because they issued the lowest coupon debt in the last few years. And now they're collecting tons more interest income at 5% at the front end than they are paying in interest um, expense. So it's just like we're, we're doing all these things that are just helping out these large corporations. And most, if you ask the average person, if, if they're like, hey, should we give preferential treatment to big businesses in this country? They'd be like, no, we shouldn't. But it's like almost all the policies that we enact, especially in the last three to four years, have done that. And it's just, it's just really frustrating to see. So that's what's on my mind uh, so far, but looking forward to getting into it with you guys. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I was going to add real quick uh, when you said that, like for JP Morgan, you know, they're making huge profits. So is Krugman. Like the more the economy is like screwed up, the more people are paying Krugman for his speeches and for his articles. So it's to his personal financial advantage uh, for there to be huge economic, you know, volatility. So, you know, where does where does BlackRock fit in all of this? Right. And where does their um, manipulation going on behind the scenes, particularly in politics, come into this? I was listening to Larry Fink this morning on CNBC. Do we know that he visited six countries? He said he visited six fucking countries. This dude is a kingmaker now, and he's got six more to visit. And what is he talking about with these countries? He's talking about these countries not issuing more debt, but instead investing in markets and all this other crap. I'm telling you, at at 10 trillion under under investment or under management, it's the third largest GDP in the world only behind China and the United States. This is, this is a country that is a corporation within the United States that is basically starting to act like a sovereign country. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing to me that, that nobody talks about this and nobody talks about, well, not nobody, and, and, but, but people don't talk enough about the influence that 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 kind of massive um, concentration of wealth has on everything that happens in in our uh, everyday lives. Yeah, we were talking about BlackRock a little bit last night too, because most of the guys who I play hockey with, they work in financial services. And uh, one of them mentioned, uh, but we were talking about the ESG movement. This is kind of related to what we're talking about here. And thankfully, the ESG movement has um, lightened up. It, it's not as crazy as it was in 2020, 2021. But this was yet another thing, another policy, another strong encouragement from different parts of the federal government. It's like, hey, you're going to do these ESG things. You're going to align with this. You're going to publish these numbers. You're going to have to hire all these people to do this. It's yet another thing that benefits large financial services companies at the expense of anyone smaller. They just cannot meet all these new regulations and disclosures and teams that they have to build. And one of my buddies was joking. He's like, yeah, at one point it was like, why don't we all just quit and work for BlackRock? Because there's not going to be that many other companies that can actually um, uh, live up to these new standards. 
like I said, thankfully it's lightened up a bit, but we'll probably see that come back at some point. I mean, at the same time, there is some hope. Um, you know, BlackRock has already pivoted away from that ESG stuff. And, and then I think, I think these Western governments are, are starting to kind of push too hard and people are waking up, you know, like Canada with the, with the trucker protest. I think, I think that was shocking to a lot of people. Um, and there's, there's more disgruntled people in the middle, um, than there are on, you know, either left or right. Did you guys see Krugman's tweet got community noted? I just saw that this morning. I did. Hey, I just wanted to chime in real quick and say be very careful comparing GDP to uh, net worth or assets. Because, uh, like, the USA's assets are $269 trillion. So, you know, basically not, not the same thing, not apples to apples. So BlackRock has lots of assets under management, but it's nothing like a country, obviously. Yeah, lots of influence for sure. But yeah, comparing those two numbers is uh, is probably not the right comparison. G- yeah, GDP being more like, that's like summing up all the transactions in an economy over a certain period of time is how I like to explain it in layman's terms. So that would be a, that's a different concept than just like the number of assets under management that any investment manager has. It's a good point of clarification. This is, this is Peter being publicly flogged. Um, I still, I still (laughs) think, I still think it's crazy that, that Larry Fink is going and visiting countries. It it just blows my mind. Yeah. Tons of, tons of influence. So that point stands. You have to remember that they're going there to gather assets as well. So it's not just going there and like, you know, oh, private audience with a president and influencing their policy or something. Maybe there's some dark shit happening. But for the most part, that's fundraising. They're going and calling on, you know, foreign governments. They're going and calling on, you know, private bank, private wealth management firms, things like that. So that's that's why they do those tours. And every every senior banker and senior asset management manager does the same thing. So, yes, it's happening. Maybe there's something nefarious, but it's not proof of anything. Yeah, I actually have some buddies who work for BlackRock, and they've been moved to other parts of the world to work in the BlackRock office in another country. So, you know, I don't think anything big-time nefarious is happening there. If anything, it just highlights to me the fact that because people cannot save in a form of money, as, as we all know in this space, they're kind of forced into investing benefits a large trillion dollar asset manager like BlackRock. Um, and yeah, so it just kind of highlights that that point to me. I feel like what I think about is I think BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, you know, combined own over 20 or 22 trillion dollars in managed assets. And it's estimated that those big three can control as much as 40% of shareholder votes in the S&P 500 within two decades. So they're growing power in boardrooms, and they can kind of influence boardrooms with that power to adopt whatever policies they want. And you kind of saw that with BlackRock, with the ESG push, and now they're kind of taking a step back from that. 
But it's curious now to think about that and then see some developments about the shift in sentiment around Bitcoin in these big organizations. Uh, Obviously, we've seen more like favorable statements from Larry Fink and others around Bitcoin. Obviously, there's the spot Bitcoin ETF developments. I was wondering if you guys have any thoughts around that or um, Corey, I'd love to hear your thoughts around just any of those developments around these like bigger institutions, seemingly the sentiment shift um, around Bitcoin over the last couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's really excited about the potential for a Bitcoin ETF since the SEC's kind of softened their stance and actually started responding and providing comments and, you know, leaving aside the obvious risks to the network of, you know, having not the network, but I guess just to to Bitcoiners more than anything of having a bunch of paper Bitcoin IOUs. Um, I think it's obvious that in the short term, midterm, it would be a bullish development for price. But I think even more importantly, and I've talked about this a lot recently, uh, massively bullish for adoption, because basically for the last six years, the top of funnel for getting into Bitcoin has been Bitcoin's biggest enemy, crypto, right? It's been all of the liars and all the cheaters and all the scammers and all the pump and dumpers spending their 40 billion of VC funding on marketing anti-Bitcoin or contra-Bitcoin messages and trying to you know come up with some reason why you need their coin instead of Bitcoin. So it's all just been misinformation. And now the top of funnel with hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising is going to be some of the most trusted brands in the world that people trust with their money based on, you know, a century of activity in the market. And they're going to be promoting Bitcoin and they're going to be having uh, Bitcoiners in their newsletters, on CNBC, at their conferences, finding our books, finding our shows and promoting Bitcoin. And all you have to do to get people into actual bitcoin is say oh hey you know we bitcoin on ramps we strike river unchanged swan relay you know beepa whatever uh we have real bitcoin and by the way we we sell it cheaper you only have to pay a transaction fee once not every year so it's just an incredibly easy sell into an incredibly warmed up uh audience so i just think it's going to be a massive accelerant Hey Corey, do you, do you think that um, that Larry Fink's change in in attitude is because um, the fees that they're going to be able to acquire from from an ETF, or do you think he he's looking at this and going, "Wow, this thing is is unstoppable, and if I don't get on board now, then uh, I might miss the train." I don't think he knows it's unstoppable yet. That's not my take. I think it's the I think it's the fees and the size and just kind of the you know, they probably started this process of going harder at it when it when you know the crypto market was three trillion and Bitcoin was over a trillion. <laughs> I love it. Whenever I say the C word, my five year old is convinced that it's a swear word, so she yells at me baby language whenever I say it. I just heard that from about thirty feet away. She's on the lookout. Um. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so that's that's what I that's where I think they're at right now. I think. Um, you know, BlackRock had a uh, uh, like a, a blockchain group internally that would draw, you know, probably like three or four hundred employees would watch a video if they brought on a speaker or something. I did it a couple of times and there were like 50 people live, but they told me another, you know, eight to 10 X would watch it later. 
Uh, and the two guys that were running that, uh, even though they had to call it blockchain, were Bitcoiners and hated altcoins, baby. I, altcoins, sorry, I didn't say the C word. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that the seeds for that were definitely planted in the last bull run and that people started working on it over there and they got over the hump and decided that it was a mature enough asset and that there was enough, you know, enough juice to squeeze to go after it. But yeah, I don't, there's no way that dude is like fully orange pilled. That's for sure. Um, But I think he's, you know, playing a, uh, like a risk adjusted type calculation as far as getting into it. Sam, speaking of institutional and adoption, did you guys talk about Fidelity's Bitcoin first revisited piece before I hopped on? No, we haven't touched on that yet. Okay, cool. I feel like it would be worth just a couple things here. And I haven't read the whole thing, but read parts of it. Also saw that they do rehash some of the things that were in their original Bitcoin first piece, which I think is fine. I think they had a lot of great content in there. Um, But even just in their executive summary, they had a few interesting things about saying things like Bitcoin is fundamentally different from any other digital asset. No other digital asset is likely to improve upon Bitcoin as a monetary good because Bitcoin is the most, relative to other digital assets, secure, decentralized, sound digital money, and any improvement will potentially face trade-offs. They basically just a lot of comments about how Bitcoin should just be considered uh, differently from any other digital asset. Um, One more quote here. Investors should hold two distinctly separate frameworks for for considering investment in this digital asset ecosystem. The first framework examines the inclusion of Bitcoin as an emerging monetary good, and the second considers the addition of other digital assets that exhibit venture capital-like properties. So I think it's great that they're making this distinction. I think most people in this room would uh, agree with me when I say that venture capital-like properties is a very, very generous interpretation of <clears throat> some of the things that we've seen in the uh, altcoin space. But still, I think good that they are making this distinction and they go into a lot of the other uh, things about the Bitcoin network and monetary properties and scaling and security and things like that. So definitely a good piece for people to check out. And um, if you have TradFi friends, I think this type of a piece from Fidelity that's kind of written in like a research report format. I think these tend to play better with people who work in TradFi. Um, obviously, there's a million great articles and essays about Bitcoin out there that you could share with someone. But for the people who are kind of used to seeing things in this format with a big TradFi company name on it in the research report format, you know, this is a really good thing to share with them. Yes. Name name recognition matters in that world, and seeing something like Fidelity uh, say things like that. I mean, it matters. I mean, another quote there that I loved was, "Bitcoin is likely to be the primary monetary good, and another digital asset is not likely to supersede Bitcoin in this role." And around the same time, you had Joe Rogan, you know, arguably the largest podcast in the world. He said, "The real fascinating crypto is Bitcoin. That's the one that I think is the most likely possibility of becoming a universal." viable currency. And so during this bear market, I think you've really seen Bitcoin separate itself from crypto. And it's been, you know, it's been painful. It's been like peeling off, I said, a giant leech. 
but it's happening. You're, you're, you're slowly starting to see it. And Fidelity, to their credit, they've been on Bitcoin for a long time. They've been kind of a leader in the institutional world of understanding the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. But now you're seeing that kind of narrative really start to come out in other institutions. And it's kind of helped that the crypto industry just basically shot themselves in the head with their greed and their just nefarious activities and their stupidity uh, that kind of separated Bitcoin from the pack. And FTX, the trial that's going on right now, I mean, Caroline Ellison's testimony the last couple of days has been just pure entertainment. It's been insane, some of the stuff that's been revealed, like how they tried to bribe Chinese officials to unlock billions of dollars uh, from Chinese exchanges. Uh, that was unknown. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried thought he was going to be president of the United States at one point. That's what he told her. And honestly, I just think back to when that Coindesk article came out with the balance sheet. And Corey, to your credit, man, you were the, you were the only one quoted in that piece. And you were on top of it. So I'd love to hear an update from you. I mean, it, it even sounds like they were suppressing the price of Bitcoin to keep it under 20K for a while. Uh, they at least tried to. And so what are your thoughts around FTX and how it impacted price over the last couple of years? And um, what do you see kind of moving forward from this? Yeah, I've, I've been following that thread a little bit. It's kind of a new thread. And a lot of us thought that that was probably happening. And it, it makes sense that they were selling Bitcoin and probably some other things too, to try to prop up the price of, of FTT toward the end there. Um, I did see a relatively credible looking tweet yesterday that said there were only two days really where the patterns in the market and the tape kind of showed that they probably were selling customer Bitcoin on two particular days. Um, so I doubt it was kind of like this this massive broad thing that dramatically impacted the market. I also think that when you go back to, um, uh, you know, let's see, like in the bull market was 2021. You're talking about them probably selling Bitcoin in 2022, which was already kind of deep into the bear market and the C5 platforms had collapsed and the Arb trade had flipped and all that stuff in 21 with GBTC. So kind of like the whole thing and had kind of run its course. So I don't think that they could have really been enough to suppress the price of Bitcoin. And I don't think that was a goal. I think it was just them trying to make redemptions and prop up their, their S coin. That was such a massive chunk of their balance sheet. It was like over 60% of their balance sheet at the end. Hilariously. Um, yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's really new information. I think most people kind of had that price set if you think about it by now. Um, most people thought that there was a lot of chicanery over there and that one of the things they would have been doing is selling selling customer Bitcoin and propping up the price of FTT. It's hard not to tell you. I'm I'm watching I'm watching these Tiffany Fong recaps every day. You know, yep. she's doing these like seven minute recaps of the trial. It's pretty good. I mean, she's she's cracking me up too. She's a very funny delivery. I don't know her background or anything, but uh yeah, it's uh that's that's kind of the best way to get get the quick rundown is her Twitter and her YouTube. Um just recapping the stuff. But I mean, they're just a really roundly unimpressive set of individuals that I would like never hang out with 
ever hire for anything, never associate with in any way, never give any money to uh, at all, just based on personality and style. And so it just kind of, it just blows my mind how people have such a different frame of reference for who they want to do business with. And I don't even know the types of people that want to do business with these people. And I will tell you, I've met a lot of the people and, and been in business meetings with a lot of the people who did invest in FTX. And it's kind of weird going down the list and being like, oh, yeah, I've deliberately not done business with those people previously uh, in many, many cases. Um, anyway, it's just uh, I don't know. It's a different it's a different bubble that uh, no one should feel bad about not being in. Sam, you mentioned Joe Rogan, and uh, I saw some of those clips circulating, and I'm sure some people saw him talking. I forget who this one was he was talking with, but he's saying positive things about Bitcoin, and then he he actually referenced, he's like, yeah, I've had Andreas on my show, um, and he's like, Andreas you know, said this, said that, and I'm sure most Bitcoiners are hearing that, thinking like, Man, you had Andreas on your show like six years ago. <laughs> it's time for time for another Bitcoin show. Um, I hope that Joe Rogan is thinking that, but uh, we shall see how that plays out. Yeah, and this is where you have to be careful, right? It could play out with him. I know bringing on, uh, I don't know, like a Roger Veer to talk about Bitcoin, right? So this is my always my biggest concern. So happy he had Andreas on back in the day, but uh, it's not easy figuring out like who which people really know what they're talking about and which ones don't. I've never listened to that Andreas Rogan podcast. That actually might be an interesting thing to go back and hear. I would think Andreas would have done really well. It's brutal when these big podcasters jump in and do the Bitcoin thing because they immediately get hit up by a lot of credible seeming people you know with lots of credentials saying there's another side to the story and you need to cover the whole thing and so you saw like uh you know lex friedman do bitcoin and then all of a sudden it was like sponsored by coinbase and he's having hoskinson and vitalik on constantly right and you had like uh you know even in popular shows i don't know like how intellectual it is but like patrick bet david which i think is called valuetainment now and he has like um Oh, who's who's the uh, we have we have a macro lady that we have on our shows sometimes, and she actually is contracted to like econ stuff for her Danielle DiMartino. So she's like she's part of his network now, uh, and like he came on and had a couple of sniffs at Bitcoin during the bull run, but like literally the next week he had BSV on, and then it was Ethereum, and it was like. Same thing that happened with Real Vision, but Real Vision was very intentional and knew exactly what they were doing and kind of hung up a signpost to make money. But even these other podcast platforms, like they just get confused so very quickly. And they they just think that they're doing like a fair and balanced take by, you know, representing the whole space. It's it's such an incredible grift. Yeah, I remember when Patrick Bet David had sailor on um around ftx but then you're right shortly after he had bsv folks come on and it's still just confusing there's still a learning curve for people and that's what crypto has done it's really just led to a ton of confusion 
And I think you make a great point in terms of that's the biggest problem with the top of funnel where you, people get introduced and then suddenly they get bombarded with all this, this crypto crap. But um, the last couple of years definitely have damaged uh, the reputations of some of these other, these crypto promoters, I'd say. Yeah. And a, and a lot of people, when, when, when these people come on their show, they're just not able to ask them the right questions. Uh, Sam Bankman fried came through my YouTube channel one time. It was during my having stream three years ago when I had like over a hundred people on and like 50 at the same time. And uh, Sam Bankman fried came on. Like, I mean, the link was kind of open to anyone in the crypto space, uh, in the Bitcoin space. And I'm the only one that ever asked them, I'm like, hey, how is it fair that you have Alameda trading against your the users against your exchange? Like, I don't think anyone else has ever asked him that question that he had to defend publicly on a channel. What did he say? Uh, he gave his usual bullshit about how they're just providing liquidity. I mean, the video is still out there, uh, but it's like an eight hour stream. We got to find, uh, actually it's timestamp. So if anyone's curious, um, I did ask, I, I did say it right, right, right to his face. So I, like, don't you have Alameda trading against your own users? No, it's Alameda research tone. They're, they're, they were just doing crypto research. That's all. Right. No, I think I don't hear somebody again. Damn it. I thought one of the shocking things with FTX was that they were actively trying to get regulators to bring down Binance. And then you had CZ kind of dump FTT to kind of bring on this FTX collapse. I mean, these are like these giant offshore shady exchanges going after one another's throats. Um, I don't even know. It's like a Godzilla versus King Kong kind of situation or something. But it's just wild. Yeah, and not, not being aware of that, given the position they were in, is kind of mind-blowing. Uh, you know, I, I was not one of these people who was deeply looking into FTT and what it meant for FTX. So I'm not saying that I saw it coming, but if I was in their position and I knew who the holders of FTT were and how concentrated it was and how fake that price was and how we had debt out against it, I mean, they were just like completely reckless <laughs> to not see that coming as a potential scenario. Uh, it's just really mind blowing. Did you? Did anyone see uh, David Marcus on Peter's show? Yeah, I did. I thought it was an interesting interview. What do you think? I, th I thought good overall. There were a couple things that I thought were just kind of funny and and stood out to me. Um, at the very beginning, when David Marcus is kind of going through his story, he's talking about. I kind of forgot this was a thing, but there was like a craze around these online games. One was called Farmville, I think. And it was like, you buy virtual land and you like buy virtual animals and whatever. And he's like, yeah, you know, we just felt like we needed to work on a, a solution where people could frictionlessly buy something, buy, buy a virtual cow. And, you know, by the time they input all their credit card information, they realize how stupid it is that they're buying a virtual cow. So we needed to make that more frictionless. And I think he was trying to crack a joke. So maybe I don't want to take it too seriously. But I remember hearing that. And I was just like, what is going on? Like, that was really a motivation for you to, to build a product around this. So that was like a little, um, a little surprising to me. 
And then he, he made one other comment about uh, he, he the clip that circulates, which you know a lot of us like, is he talked about his unshakable convic- conviction that Bitcoin is this, uh, it stands alone as a neutral internet money. But he also made a comment about how he went through the process. He, he said something like, you know, it's one thing to have that view if you have laser eyes shooting from your profile picture or something like that. He's like, but it's another to have gone through what he went through and like tried to build these other things. And I just, I, I feel like, you know, shout out to the laser eye community. Not all of us needed to uh, try to build a centrally issued token from a Silicon Valley tech company to figure out that that's a bad idea and that Bitcoin is better. I wouldn't have been proudly saying that myself. Um, but either way, if he ended up in the place where he believes he's highly convicted that Bitcoin is a neutral internet money, then then great. But those two comments from him, I was just like, huh, that's a little odd. Yeah, we see the turnaround in people's journey all the time. That's the good thing. Hopefully. Somebody comes in, they fuck around, and if they, you know, one way or another, they hang out long enough or they have enough finances to, to, or enough connections to keep rolling in the space and do something else. And now they're a Bitcoiner because of their experiences. That's great. But my sentiments on David Marcus haven't changed. Like he has uh, spent a good career of his, uh, a good part of his time in this space attacking Bitcoin, as we know. And I'm glad that he's come around. And he's got some kind of new, like, you know, lightning focus, whatever. It's great for him, but he's going to be in my penalty box for a minute with that initial entry into the space. I'm going to welcome him with open arms. uh, Yeah, well, well, I mean, I don't agree with him on everything, but I don't remember him attacking Bitcoin. Did he ever attack Bitcoin? Well, he worked on Libra, right? He was over at Facebook trying to build Libra instead of just working on Bitcoin. This is a funny so he line. actually Everyone's hold on hold on different. he he actually started that and tried to do it with Bitcoin first inside of Facebook and couldn't get it through so you know that was actually his intention was to do it with Bitcoin initially and they didn't think it had enough liquidity or maturity I mean it was early in the days of Lightning when he started the project I think it was 2018 when he and uh, Morgan I think it was like probably 26 at the time got that thing started inside of Facebook. Um, and he's been, you know, bullish on Bitcoin and promoting it for a lot longer than me going back to 2012 or something like that. Sure. So, fair yeah, enough. I, I don't, I don't love that all the business that LightSpark is doing is basically just for crypto exchanges and, you know, whatever, but it's, uh, you know, they're still building cool shit for lightning and a lot of people are using it and they're cutting costs for a lot of businesses on lightning sends and withdrawals. And, they're out here at the Bitcoin conferences supporting and, and showing up. So, you know, kudos to them. I think their yeah. office spaces are a little too fancy, but uh, that's just me. I'm glad that you have that perspective and that that perspective exists and that that and that there is, you know, a, a past that you can point to on that. The I don't have that information. The past information that I have with with him is the words that I watched him say. And, you know, I don't have them all on the back of my back that I can just present them all now. We'll have to go back and do our own digging. But well, I, I mean, do remember him in Congress. I do remember him in Congress being incredibly legal. eloquent on Bitcoin, though. I do remember him being very eloquent in Congress at the hearing on Bitcoin um, and, and talking about like exactly what it was in accurate words. 
if I were going to have like any gripe with LightSpark today, it's just that they their kind of team is not integrated enough into the Bitcoin community to even understand, you know, not to tweet out from their handle a snippet of an Andreessen <laughs> podcast where Andreessen says, finally, we found a team worth investing in. And that's like what yeah. LightSpark promoted on Twitter. Like, so there's kind of maybe like a wooden ear and not, not being close enough to the Bitcoin community to understand how bad stuff like that works. But this but, is my point. You know, yeah. They only, I mean, he's been in the space customers. for so long, right. And he's been focusing on Bitcoin for so long, but this is still these little signs still come out where it's like, Hmm. So yeah, for me, I mean, I appreciate everything you're saying, Corey, this yep. is a good perspective and I'm glad that pers these perspectives exist. Like I said, to me, penalty box still not that I'm mad. I'm just saying everybody everybody's yeah. in the penalty box, bro. Nobody ever gets out. That's how it should be. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I usually take your side and, and kind of look for all the holes in these guys, but I think it's good occasionally to, you know, try to try to steel man it and understand what, what good things are going on there too. Yeah. Here's the good news. Now that it's, you know, once they do come back and they're like, okay, I have this pass, but now I'm back and I'm trying to be like the super Bitcoiner and I want to contribute to the space. Like there are people that are watching it closely. So there is this bit. So we'll that's see how it goes. True. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. There's also something interesting about people that have been in the space a long time and, you know, they, they devoured podcasts and newsletters for two or three years. And then they kind of, you know, more or less tired of it and they had their friends and they're focused on building a business or whatever. And they just kind of, they don't keep up with the trends and don't keep up with kind of what's new. And so like their, their knowledge of who's in Bitcoin and what's going on and, or even the idea that, you know, Bitcoiners really hate Andreas and Horowitz, for instance, is just not known to some people that have been in Bitcoin for a long time because they, they don't really participate in the community that much. And this actually goes for quite a few founders of Bitcoin companies too, right? They just, they just don't listen to podcasts and they have families and they work on their business and they otherwise just don't really, you know, spend their time engaging and understanding who the enemies are and who the friends are. And they just kind of have their own views about Bitcoin. And I, I mean, I, I respect it in some ways because it's like very hard to live that kind of like Zen life in the middle of Bitcoin, in my opinion, it's like impossible for me anyway. But um, I think that is where sometimes some of the blind spots come from uh, with even people that we would all consider to be fully on the mission and totally into Bitcoin. And they just don't realize somehow kind of like how the alliances have shifted and the narratives have shifted and, you know, things like that. Macro minute to get your hands up. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just had a quick, quick question for you guys. I don't know if you've been tracking it or not specifically, but I think today is the deadline for the SEC to appeal the grayscale decision. Or do you guys have any info on that, or have you heard anything on it? I just surfed with Gary Gensler. He was tight-lipped about it. Said nothing to my surprise. Yeah, this is what we were talking about early, early in the show, Sam. Uh, yeah, okay, we, I must, yeah, we were I talking about that, Ben. Yeah, we talked about it in the, in the beginning of the show. You can go back, but um, essentially, 
the SEC can choose to appeal. Many analysts believe that they they won't go through with that. Um, so, but that'll just basically mean they have to re-review their decision to reject the conversion of the GBTC into an ETF. Doesn't essentially mean that they'll automatically approve it or anything like that. They could come back and say, "Hey, we're going to reject it for a different reason." Um, I think it's like a bullish development if they do decide to to not appeal it. Uh, but again, that doesn't mean like automatically that a spot Bitcoin ETF is going to be approved just because that happens. So I should hold off on leasing a Lambo then. I would hold off forever personally from doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Just lease it. Don't buy it. Get the Lambo dealership in a few years. Well, we can kind of pivot a little bit. I saw a, uh, I saw a pretty hilarious picture um, of Treasury Secretary Yellen and Christine Lagarde. <laughs> Jacob, can you throw it up in the nest? I just think it's funny. Like they're at these like IMF meetings, and it, their plan is to expand the powers of the IMF and World Bank, which has makes me sick to my stomach, to be honest with you. Um, but this picture is just like two BFFs and they're both looking at different cameras and they're smiling. And meanwhile, the world is kind of thinking about this debt situation that these are two of the architects of the debt problem that we have today. And they're just smiling from ear to ear about expanding the powers of the IMF, who uh, internationally has enslaved many countries in unsustainable debt. So. Um, I just think it's hilarious. I don't know. It's just a funny picture. <laughs> Check it out. Um, Joe Kawasari, I wanted to get your opinion on what we're seeing in this bond market because we saw the bond yields kind of spike the last couple of days, but lately they've been kind of falling back down. Um, and then we saw this like terrible auction occur with 30-year treasuries the other day. Um, yes, Yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday, so I wanted the to get your opinion. The auction tail was the widest I think since November of uh, it was November twenty one. So like a couple of years now, this guy had a terrible auction tail. Yeah, so maybe maybe break down kind of what you thought about that and. Um, uh, my my view is they're you know, and I, I tweeted this out the other day. I think they're getting exactly what they want with the sell off and duration. Um, they want even potentially to uninvert the curve. They want long-end rates to get higher, and I think a lot of people have been camped out in this recession as looming trade, piling into treasuries. Uh, I mean, the, the TLT, I was reading this article about how they there was two dealers that couldn't even meet TLT demand on a daily basis. People piling into this convinced that you know, that's a good trade in the short term, and a lot of those folks who have been uh, in that trade for a year now saying the recession is just next quarter, they've gotten absolutely smoked. Um, so I think you get it. I think it continues. Um, I think the folks that are, you know, bearish in the long bond here are correct. I think that ultimately it's going to go probably before it meets, uh, we're starts to see solid demand and, and stabilize probably closer to 5.5, uh, which is unbelievable uh, from a value perspective. Uh, but, uh, aside from that, you know, I think it's exactly what the fed is looking for. I mean, the, the, the two, 
the governors that came out and commented how, you know, they think that they might not even have to hike again if the sell-off in the long end um, continues because of its tightening effect is uh, is really uh, sort of informative how the Fed's looking at it. They have continued to have to jack up the front end where they have the most control um, to prop- perhaps higher than they even intended to go because the bond market has been resisting it the entire hiking cycle. Um, in the bond market, just to give just to give people a refresher on where it was positioned, and this isn't like the Fed's uh, SEP, uh, their, their, their long-run dot plot. This is the bond market that thought we would have cuts uh, back in June. Okay, If you go back to the end of last year, end of 2022, they were projecting as much as at one point 150 basis points of cuts by the middle part of 2023. Um, that has been terribly wrong. Uh, the economy is, I mean, we're, we're on target for like 5% real GDP growth for Q3, uh, according to the Atlanta Fed, if that's to be trusted. So, you know, you're seeing these, these, these uh, cuts unwound and the bear steepening at the long end is going to wreak havoc on risk assets, in my opinion. Joe, can I ask you um, what you think that, and this is obviously a loaded question, but I'm sure you can just give kind of a summary view. What's, what's your opinion on what people miss? The people that were calling for a recession to be around the corner, um, and it obviously hasn't happened. They thought that Fed cuts would come on the back of that. What do you think were the big things that they missed when they in having that view? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've talked about it a couple times in this room. I think that the quote-unquote long and variable lags of monetary policy are probably at the weakest point they have been in the last 100 years. I think, I think a ton of custom, uh, consumers and companies, um, uh, major actors, major economic actors loaded up on bonds, uh, excuse me, loaded up on, on credit, on debt, um, when it was extremely low. So in prior cycles, you know, just to give you one, one data point here, uh, like the, the 2007, 2006 uh, housing uh, crisis, you had as much as a third of the housing market, believe it or not, in adjustable rates. So when you had hikes, you saw a very quick reaction function from, uh, from homeowners, right? Because they, they saw the pain almost immediately. Um, and I think that that uh, has been something, you know, the fact that a lot of consumers are resistant to interest rate uh, risk in the short run is basically prolonged the effects you would expect to see. And what a lot of macroeconomic thinkers uh, do, and I'm, I was guilty of this as well, they, they sort of tried to um, think that the economy was going to be much more reactive in the short run to interest rate volatility. And it wasn't. Um, stocks have been obviously very uh, responsive. I mean, that's what 2022 was. But And I think people confuse the sell-off and risk assets uh, with being an economy that is actually responding to the real economy, responding to uh, the rate hikes. But I would argue the real economy is not not really largely been affected by the interest rate hikes. You can look at things like net interest uh, as a percentage of profits, which is at an all-time low because people still haven't had to roll paper. So like that is that is a clear indication to me that despite a rapid hiking cycle, um, this time has in fact been different because companies had enough uh, ma- longer dated maturities where they didn't have to instantly refinance. That changes, right? That starts to ramp up in the early part of next year, and that's when you'll, you'll feel a lot of pain, I think. Um, but that's one big factor. Another huge factor is that unlike prior cycles, when you have an inflationary impulse 
like we had here, which was, you know, 40 year uh, by some measures, even uh, for 50 year highs in inflation. What what the government has to do in that situation across the board is they have to raise colas, right? They have to give a 9% increase in Social Security. So grandma and grandpa can, uh, despite a tightening Fed, they can go take all their kids out to, to dinners as often as they want because they just got a 90% or 9% increase in uh, the expenditures they, uh, they made. So you've got a lot of like additional fiscal stimulus entering the system. which is uh, in addition to years of stimulus that have been piled on from the government. And you have a lot of people that just weren't affected in the short run by rate hikes. That changes in the long run. But I think in the short run, uh, it it didn't really do anything to the real economy. That's why demand stayed relatively robust. Those are great thoughts. Thanks, Joe. A couple of things I would add to it um, or or maybe just – phrase in this, in my own way, um, elaborate on what you were saying. I, I just don't, I, you know, granted I'm in my mid thirties, I follow the markets. So maybe there's some historical period I'm not thinking of, but this seems to me to be very unprecedented that, you know, do no, rate hikes normally lead to a recession? I think the answer is yes. But has there ever been a time where these things preceded a period of rate hikes. Three big things, in my opinion. One, Joe clearly hit on, you have corporations, any corporation that could tap the capital market, so investment grade and high yield, they issued record levels of debt over 2020 and 2021 at record low coupons. So in layman's terms, that can was successfully kicked pretty far down the the road. Um, The housing market, People were buying homes like crazy, locking in record low 30-year mortgage rates. So when rates go up for those people, it's not affecting them. Um, if you wanted to buy a house and you didn't do it in 2021 or early 22, you know, sorry. But for, for those people who did, rates going up are not affecting them. And then one other factor that I would add is we have massive government deficit spending um, or sorry, BTFP would be one that I should say first. So the banks are insulated from higher rates to a certain extent. Um, And then the other one is that the government is deficit spending at rates that you would historically only see during a recession. So if you look at where we're at now, it's like five or 6% of GDP is the deficit spending that, that we're at right now. And if you look at that historically, the last times that we hit that level would be in some sort of recession. So like 2009, um, looks like 1983, we kind of hit like five or uh, 6%. And then clearly World War II, it you know spiked like crazy and came back. We're supposedly not in a recession right now, but the US government is deficit spending like crazy. And that's, I, I don't believe that's healthy. I don't believe that's actual real economic growth, but that is going to lead to the economic statistics being pumped up. And, and it's, it, it delays the recession from happening. So to me, that this is a very, very unique macro environment that I, I don't think that there's a, a, a full historical analogy for. I still am of the belief that we hit some sort of recession because these actions that the government's taking, these are not real solutions. Um, this is, it's just a Band-Aid. It's just a, a can-kicking exercise. But we may look back on this period um, of 2022 to, I don't know, 25 or 26 and say, this was the slowest walk into a recession 
after a rate hiking cycle that we've seen in economic history. I think that's entirely possible. Yeah, I, I think one, I think all that's right. The, sorry. No, I was just gonna say the, the, if if we're looking for a parallel, what if the parallel is the seventies? Um, that that was nah. one quick question I wanted to have. Nah. Well, I mean, with Qatar saying this morning that they're looking to strangle the. Uh, trade of oil. If you do see oil prices go through the roof, I think we're going to have to see interest rates go even higher than expected. Um, so again, I, that that that's my quick question. If if we do see oil just to continue to skyrocket with you know geopolitical and 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 mess and and warmongering going on, obviously there's no love lost between the Saudis and the Israelis without trying to get into too much politics. But is is that a would if the price of oil just continues to skyrocket, do we see interest rates go even higher for longer than than what we would have imagined? And is the seventies our parallel? Seventies is not the parallel for five major reasons. Number one, the workforce dynamics are entirely different. One of the one of the things that you had uh, driving real gains in wages in the 1970s was you had an exploding workforce participation. You had women entering the workforce. Um, and that was also funneled by, you know, very favorable demographic headwinds. You had a, a much younger population overall. The baby boomers were coming of age and they had to demand a huge amount of consumer goods, consumer durables that drove and superpowered the economy. That's the first major reason. But then the second is you had much different debt, uh, debt picture, the debt, the debt issues that we're talking about. We were, run, we were not running anywhere near the amount of structural deficits as uh, we were taught, as, as was just referenced uh, by John. That's spot on. I mean, look at look at the actual debt to GDP ratios in the 1970s compared to, debt to GDP today. Uh, it's a totally different dynamic. And the, the third reason that I think is structurally different between the 1970s and and today is that in today, the, the dynamics of the labor market are such that manufacturing has taken a side seat to the service-based economy. And, in the, and that, that changes the inflation picture uh, considerably. When you are building more things in the United States and you don't, aren't as reliant on globalization, um, and, and now you're trying to deglobalize all this, that, that changes the nature of the, the inflation picture. And the, I think the fourth thing is like with the 1970s, when you're thinking about uh, the structure of the, of the current economy, it, we didn't have as much of it dependent on financialization. Our, our, our economy, our, our demand is driven by the wealth effect, which requires high asset uh, prices. The stock market did really horribly for most of the 1970s. So you didn't have an economy as tied up in, in financialization, which is a, a structural change. And then the final thing I think that is, is different distinctly from 1970s is that to, in today's environment, what I think the, the, the key, the key uh, issue you need to think about is, the, is private sector debt. And John alluded to this, not just government spending, but the private sector debt. And go look at corporate balance sheets compared to the 1970s, where they were, they were able to engage in just the first little taste of that you know, credit expansion, expanding out and borrowing and beginning buybacks and all these things that have come to dominate, you know, our, our system today, they hadn't done that yet. Uh, they, they were much more frugal in how they approached corporate balance sheets. So that, that changes the nature of what's sustainable and debt ultimately is disinflationary, deflationary. The more and more debt you pile on, uh, Lacey Hunt talks about this is called the marginal revenue product of debt. Uh, as you spend more money, you get less bang for your buck. As you, as you, and that's what John is alluding to as well when he's saying like we have to spend wartime, we have to spend effectively wartime deficits 
to keep the economy afloat in today's system because we're getting less bang for our buck. And most of the spending we're doing is not on productive things. It's not like you're building the interstate highway system. You're spending on entitlement programs. And in the private sector, you're spending on ESG to, to ramp up the yeah. cost of production, unfortunately. So it's, yeah, it's a two-tailed thing. So, so there's no doubt, like, right, like anybody who thinks that this is like a new, like, economic cycle, it's, it, you, I, I don't know how else to say this without being a, a jerk, but I think you're kind of ignorant. This is late state. You don't start an economic cycle with secular lows and unemployment. That's not how it works. We're, we're, we're basically, everybody who, can, who is, is employable has a job. Okay, you don't start a, you don't start a new economic cycle when you have the kind of unemployment picture we have. It's late cycle. We can debate how long it is. John is exactly right. I think it can take a lot longer than people think. We could have this exact conversation a year from now, but you are lurching towards recession. There's no doubt. And by the way, this is not just my view. This is Powell's view, right? Like he he, he was asked at the last presser, "Is a soft landing your base case?" And he said, "No." But I mean, how much more explicit can he be? He expects a recession, and we can debate like how severe it is, how hard it is. But um, you know, there, we're we're headed towards recession. It's just a question of when, not if. Joe, wasn't he the one who was talking about soft landing in the beginning, back in the day, or was that somebody else? He was, no, he was saying he was hopeful and optimistic. But he actually, he, he, they asked him if that was still his view at the last presser, and go read the transcript. He said, "That's not my base case. That's a nice way of saying I don't expect it." Joe, everyone has a job, but a lot of people have two jobs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and this, this is a, it's a mess, right? Because I, for one, believe that the only way you get inflation back to target, and I think the Fed believes this, by the way, as well, I think the only way you get back to 2%, which is effectively you have to crush the prices of assets. You have to beggar the country, right? You have to make the stock market much lower. You have to make real estate prices much lower across the board so people don't feel as wealthy with their home values. You have to make people a lot poorer, and then you can sufficiently crush inflation. Um, you know, and 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 it's just what it is. Like they they they're in a controlled demolition of these asset classes, and I think they're prepared to do it. And I think they want to bring inflation back to target. And if they don't, I think the long end of the bond market totally blows out, and then debts become unsustainable. So they they have a choice, right? Their choice is completely cripple the ability of the government to borrow and make it run huge, massive structural deficits because bond rates are really high. Um, or alternatively, uh, you're going to have to basically take a recession. And, and this morning, Larry Fink is on CNBC telling people that they should get further out on the risk curve and go 100% equities. Yeah, yeah I, I, I heard that. That was funny. I just, I don't know, man. I think I, I just, you think if what you say is true and they got to crush demand and asset prices have to go down and it's just like what you said, the economy has become so financialized and dependent on this, you know, wealth effect, um, tax receipts would fall and then the fiscal deficit would just blow out. And so that's kind of, yeah, but the bond, the, market, the bond market would be saved. That's the key. They can save the bond market. The system holds together. And I think, at, at, you know, it's like the old James Carville quote, right? Like when he's dead, he wants to come back and be resurrected as the bond market because it can scare anybody. It can scare presidents. It can scare, you know, uh, congressmen. It can it controls the system. The ability of the government to finance large structural deficits is 
necessary. It's the, you know, Lynn Alden talks about this liquidity in the treasury market is the one thing that gets the Fed to blink. And if you don't crush the economy, the bond market just is going to be running at higher rates of, uh, that's how bonds work, right? You're going to be going to be paying higher yields for the foreseeable future. And that's not sustainable from a fiscal perspective. So do you think the Fed's going to step in and, and do yield curve control at some point then? No, like I think yield curve control doesn't doesn't help the problem. It, it, it makes it worse. That's a, that's an inflationary impulse. You want higher rates if you're the Fed. Fed wants higher rates. And this is them speaking because they want to crush demand. Joe, Joe, can you elaborate on what you mean by saving the bond market? Yeah, I want to jump in real quick. And I'm sorry, I, I, whoever is using the Pacific Bitcoin handle, I can't hear you either. I'm tired of coming back. Every, every time I come back, there's a different person I can't hear. Uh, I, I was going to comment uh, to Joe that, look, I've been on the bullish equities train for like almost a decade now, and I'm still on the bullish equities train. And so uh, I, I don't think Larry think it's wrong. Like, I think equities are going higher because of the mayhem in the bond market. Like, and again, I've been saying this for a decade now. I've only like, uh, I've only had my channel for maybe seven, eight years. So unfortunately, most people didn't get to hear me say it uh, two years earlier than that, is that we are in an environment where no one wants to buy government debt. And the, one of the reasons why the yields aren't coming down is because no one wants to take the risk of the U.S. government not paying uh, on their federal bonds. And I know this sounds crazy, and they'll find a way to weasel out of it. They're like, well, we're just restructuring what we owe you. Or, you know, they're going to move to a different currency. They're going to find a way. And uh, countries are not buying American debt. Russia's not buying. China's not buying. India's staying away. So who the hell is buying American debt? It is literally has become us. And our friends that, uh, of America that we can still control, like Japan, like Europe, maybe Canada, if they have any money to buy it, but they can print it and buy it. So the, one of the reasons why the interest rate is going to stay high on, on government debt is because they have to, like, no one's going to buy it at a lower interest rate, right? That, that's one of the problems. And so where do you put your money, uh, especially when there is another war breaking out near Europe? Uh, where do you put your money? And it's, I think it's all going to go into equities. So well, I'm very bullish on equities going forward. Yeah, but the, the problem is the flows, that's not backed up by some of the flows. I mean, again, the dominant, whether you hate it or I think it's stupid, and I agree with you, I agree, I'm much more bullish equities than long-term holdings of bonds. But, but what I'll tell you is that when you have a 60-40 portfolio, and the 40% of your bond portfolio keeps going lower because yields keep going higher, you have to sell equities. The, the people, the, the, all the managers will sell equities. Um, and you have a huge amount of baby boomers who, if they just, you know, close their eyes and, you know, hold their, hold their breath, what Vanguard's going to do from a rebalancing perspective is going to stick them in like 60, 70% government bonds and continue to sell equities that they built up through over a lifetime because of, you know, that's how our target date funds work. When you're, when you get older, you allocate more to bonds. So, so effectively, as you drive rates higher, what you're effectively doing is you're sucking money out of the equity market. But, Which, but I think that's, I think that that's going to change. Uh, I think maybe, I, it might be, yeah. it'll, it'll definitely break at some point, but the, I mean, look, look yesterday, look what happened in the equity market when you had this, auction with, with, with the tail, um, you basically had a sharp sell-off in equities instantly. 
because that is an indication that there's lack of demand uh, for bonds at these yields and to incentivize people to buy these instruments, buy these securities, yields need to go higher. So if you if you believe rates are going to 7% and you're an economic actor and you can, you're going to be able to buy duration at 7%, okay, the stock market is wildly overvalued. All right, guys. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, always love talking to you guys. So thanks for sharing your insights. Um, this was Cafe Bitcoin. This is the number one place to listen to Bitcoin every weekday morning. Brought to you by Swan.com. I wanted to bring up. Uh, you know, we talked about Pacific Bitcoin all week, and what a great time we all had. Um, and right now, there's early bird tickets already being sold for Pacific Bitcoin Festival 2024. This is the cheapest you can get these tickets. So go check it out, PacificBitcoin.com. If you had a great time this year, um, we're probably going to go bigger and better next year. The team is always improving. So go check it out. Um, thanks to all the speakers who joined, and thanks for everyone who's listening today. Uh, I always appreciate these conversations. I always learn so much. Peter, um, Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I just wanted to say that one of the highlights of my of my time at, at Cafe Bitcoin was a it was a Sam and Natalie were were walking by and Sam actually took a stuttered step when he gave me the head nod. I was really appreciative of that. <laughs> Only for you, man. Only for you. But um, you guys all have a good weekend. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have much ads. Snacks, ads. Go touch some grass. Call your mom. All that good stuff. Um, always enjoy talking to you guys. So have a great weekend.